Good afternoon, and welcome to chapter 10 of Revelation. We are flying. Woo! <laughs> chapter 10. And we're not even out of the first year yet, and we've made it through nine chapters. That's not bad. Um, any prayer requests, just please hit us up on Facebook. We'll be mm -hmm. happy to pray with you and for you. But uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your many blessings upon our life, Lord, for allowing us the opportunity once again to come into your house to worship, to praise, and to honor your name. Mm -hmm. Lord, we ask that you'll anoint my lips as I endeavor to bring forth your message. And Lord, that you'll anoint our ears to hear and our hearts to receive. In Jesus' sweet and holy name we pray. Amen. Now, I take these videos that I make here and I put them on, on YouTube. And I just, you know, I advertise on my Facebook page that they're out there. And people have been watching them. And I've only had one comment, though. And it was on the four, the chapter with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And this guy commented like I had said something wrong. But when I looked at his comments, I'm like, oh, that's exactly what I said, dude. <laughs> so I don't know if he was just repeating what I said or what. But anyway, I thought it was kind of funny. But I do appreciate everybody watching and, and, and sharing this. Uh, it's very interesting to see where all of it's gone. I've actually, well, we went into the Netherlands the other night, which blew my mind. Somebody in the Netherlands needs a life because they're watching Revelation from Mount Holly or from Denver, North Carolina. So chapter 10, and it's a short chapter, really. So we might actually get into chapter 11 tonight if it's, uh, you know, if I'll shut up talking and start teaching. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was, as it were, the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. Chapter 10 is another parentheses chapter, just as chapter 7 was. And it was the discussing of the 144,000 sealed. Chapter 10 is a parenthesis for God to reveal that this is a part of a promise. Now, all of Revelation is a promise, but this is a part of a promise. And I'll get into that here in a second. But every once in a while, Revelation just pauses for a second. And, and people get confused because they pause. But, you know, when you, when you read a story, when you read a novel, when you read anything, except for maybe a tech manual, they do this. They pause and they, they introduce something that that's key, but maybe it doesn't need to be in a separate area or a separate location. So God writes the same way. And I say God because God dictated what was said and John the Revelator wrote it. Chapter 10 is a parenthesis. The seventh angel had not sounded, but awaits the conclusion of this portion of the Great Tribulation until the events of chapter 10 and most of chapter 11 are finished. If you will, a little bit of a break from the events, but not much of a one. Since all the world is in utter devastation and awaits the other shoe to drop, the anticipation has got to be tremendous. The angel here is not one of the seven angels, but has an important mission, purpose, and task to perform. Let's look at the angel. He is clothed in a cloud, or a cloud covers him. Jesus comes in the cloud, and this angel is covered in a cloud. He has a rainbow over his head. Mm -hmm. Remember that the purpose of a rainbow is a sign of a promise that God made to Noah and the rest of the world that he would not destroy the earth with water or a flood again. Genesis 9, 12 through 13 states, And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. So yes, it is a promise, but it is also a clear sign that the destruction that had just happened, as in the days of the flood, were man's doing and not God's. The rainbow in Revelation chapter 10 is a reminder that God's destroying the world is man's fault, just as in the days of Noah. His, or the angel's face, shone like the sun, or was illuminated and it glowed. His countenance was bright. His legs were like pillars of fire. 
So his legs and his feet also shone. They glowed. Not as his face did, as the sun, but as a fire. So that gives you an impression of this of this angel. And he has a very important, important step here. And in his hand, a little book is open, a little scroll, if you will. And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. Now, when we think of angels, a lot of times we think of little cherubims flying around, and little babies, and we think of the angel maybe that showed up at, uh, at Gabriel or was Gabriel that showed up at uh, John, the father of John the Baptist, which was actually Zacharias. We think of maybe Gabriel showing up in front of Mary or Joseph. We think of regular sized or infants, but this one was apparently pretty big. His foot was upon the sea and his left foot was on the earth. In his hand, he carried a little scroll and it was opened. This is not the same scroll that was sealed by the seven seals. This is an entirely different scroll. The scroll that was sealed, no one except Jesus could hold or look on. But here was an angel carrying another little scroll. He had one foot on the sea and one foot on the dry land, just as in the old days of a town crier that went around with the king's decree, declaring it to all in the town, city, village, whatever there were people, the town crier would go through and follow his script for that message. This angel is no different. By standing on the dry land and the ocean, the angel was establishing this message he was about to give was for everyone and for all. So he's no respecter. This is not Jesus, but he is no respecter. This message was for everyone there. And the seventh angel with the seventh trumpet is waiting for this angel to speak before he does anything. And this angel, he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. As he cried or proclaimed the message, just as a lion roar and gets everyone and everything's attention, this angel with a clear, loud voice declares or gets everyone's attention. As the angel spoke, seven thunders sounded in an audible voice. These thunders were loud, clear, audible sounds coming from heavens. These thunders roared and bellowed all through the city. Now, we think of the thunder and it rolling, and we think of the lightning and it flashing. Well, these seven thunders had a voice. And I bet everybody in the world is wondering, what did the seven thunders say? Guess what? You're not going to find out tonight. We won't know what the seven thunders says until much, much later. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. John says, I was going to write it down. It was important what they said. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, a separate voice from heaven coming from heaven. It was the voice of God. Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. Here is a very important piece of the puzzle for Revelation. No one has a clue what the seven thunders said. And we will never know until that day. <coughs> John the Revelator was going to write about what the thunder spoke. He was going to write it down to send it to the seven churches and for us. However, he was told not to write it. And not to write what was said. This will remain a mystery until this event takes place. But isn't not writing down what was going, what was said going to contrary the whole idea of the book of Revelation? Isn't the book of Revelation meant to be read and understood? So why couldn't John write it down? Because God said not to write it down and John the Revelator complied. It will be revealed in proper and correct timing. We will know when we get to that point, but we do not need to know yet. God always works on the perfect timing, and his timing is always going to be perfect. We, we pray for healing, and we don't get healed immediately. 
We pray for deliverance from, you know, some oppression and we don't get that deliverance and we think God has abandoned us. No, there's a reason why God is doing what God is doing. Why did Jesus wait for four days before he went to the tomb of his friend, Lazarus, to raise him from the dead? His timing was perfect. Lazarus died and we think, oh my gosh, Lazarus died so Jesus was late. No, he was right on time. He was there to do a job, and that was to bring glory to God the Father. And by going at the fourth day, that brought glory to, to God the Father. We will know what the writers or what the thunder spoke when it's our time to know. Just as we don't know what Jesus was writing on the ground when they brought the woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, we don't know what Jesus was writing, but we know that he was writing on the ground something. People have speculated for hundreds and hundreds of years what Christ was writing. I've heard ministers say he was writing people's names and their sins down. I've heard people say he was just writing the sins down. He might have just been drawing a picture of a cloud. We don't know. It's not important for us to know what he was writing. But what was important was what happened. He who was without sin cast the first stone. And everybody dropped their stone and walked away. And Jesus went, kept on riding. And he looked up in a few minutes and nobody was there but the woman. And he asked her, he said, well, where is those people that condemn you? They left. I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. And she left. The important thing is that moment. I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. That's the important moment. What was being written on the ground, it's not for us to know. What the thunder spoke, is not for us to know right now. We can speculate. We can say, I've heard people say, well, it was the date of the tribulation. It was the name of the Antichrist. It was, who knows? We know that they spoke in a clear Voice. We know that they they were very loud, but we don't know what they said, and we're not supposed to know. The angel, verse 5 says, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven. The angel with the scroll that stood on the sea and land lifted his hand and took an oath. Just as we do if we're called to court to testify about what we saw or what we know when we affirm that the testimony that we are about to give is the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. This angel also lifts his hand to testify. And swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things that therein are and the earth and the things that therein are and the sea and the things which are therein are that there should be time no longer. There's your promise. I testify to the heavens that time will be delayed no more. And King James says it as time no longer, but the actual translation, and I don't throw rocks at King James, don't get me wrong, but a better translation is that it should, the delay should be no more. There shall be no more delay. He took an oath of God that lives forever and who created all things that there should be time no longer. This is how KJV or King James Version translates this verse. However, other translations, such as the complete Jewish Bible, the New English Translation, the New American Standard, translates this as there will be no more delay. This is a more complete translation. The verse is not telling us that time as we know it will no longer exist, but what it is telling us is that there will be no more delay in God's judgment. You've had your chance, and you've blown it. Once the next angel, the seventh angel with the seventh trumpet sounds, God's judgments will fall fast. Or God's judgment, because that's the last one will fall fast like lightning and he will make an end to earth and mankind's petty little ways will all be finished. He lifts up his hand. He takes an oath. He makes the promise. Now this is the same angel that's got the 
rainbow over his head for the promise. The rainbow has been hijacked by others, and it shouldn't have been. The rainbow is a promise between God and man, a covenant between man and God, that God says, I will not destroy the earth with water no longer. And he keeps that covenant by looking on that rainbow. He sees this rainbow over the angel's head, and he realizes that he's about to destroy the earth and everything that's on it. But he's going to bring it back new, fresh, complete. The entire earth is going to be like the Garden of Eden when he gets through. The entire earth. Not just the Garden of Eden, wherever it was, but the entire earth is going to be like the Garden of Eden. Verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophet. When the seventh angel blows the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God will be revealed and the world as we know it ends. And Jesus' millennial reign begins. Tribulation will end all war ceases for a thousand years. There is one last battle to be fought, the battle of Armageddon. We are spectators in this battle because Jesus fights this battle and wins. We don't have to fight it. So after the seventh angel, tribulation is over. Jesus sets up his throne for a thousand years. And for a thousand years, the world knows perfect peace. There's no crime. There's no hunger. There's no poverty. There's none of that. For a thousand years, we live in perfect harmony with everything. And I'm a firm believer that that means that we live in harmony with nature as well. There will be no tension. There will be no discourse. It will all be the way it's planned to be for a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand years, Satan gets released and... Well, he deceives people. Now, that has always blown my mind. And after a thousand years of living in perfect peace and harmony with everybody and everything, you can still be deceived by Satan. But there will be some deceit. He's setting up his perfect kingdom, and yet we still want more. Don't, don't make sense to me. Verse 8, And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again, not the angel's voice, but the one from heaven, God's voice, Jesus' voice, and said, Go and take the little book which is opened in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. The voice again speaks to John the Revelator and tells him to retrieve the little scroll or book from the angel's hand. Another clear indication that this scroll is not the scroll that the Lamb, Jesus, opened with the seven seals. Because only Christ can see that scroll that he unsealed. He can see inside of it. Verse 9, And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. Now see, John the Revelator was told to go and take the book. And he went and took the book, but he didn't know what he was going to do with the book. We get to the point, and I'm going to pause here for a second, for just a second, we get to the point where we want to know what the next step and the next step and the next step and the next step and the next step is. How about we just go that first step and we figure out, we wait until God tells us to take the second step. John the Revelator didn't know what he was going to do with the book. He was told to go take the book. He went and took the book. Now what am I going to do with the book? He didn't know. God says go and we, want, we go, uh, okay, uh, when I go, what am I supposed to do? How about just go? Well, well, what do you want me to do when I get there? Just go. Well, who do you want me to talk to? Just go. You know, God's got to get so fed up with us because we don't, we, we want to know the whole picture. We can't handle the whole picture. We can only handle the portion that God's given us and we need to learn to accept that. When he tells us to go, we need to go. And when we get there, he'll tell us the next step. We may be waiting for a year, two years, 10 years, whatever. 
six months, one day. We may have to wait for a little bit, but we need to, to learn to do what God has told us and do it in the order that he's told us to do it. 36 years ago, God told me to come to North Carolina. I didn't know anything other than that. I knew that I was going to get a job in North Carolina. I knew that, I, even though I didn't have an interview yet. And even though I didn't even have a job application put in yet, God said, you're going to take a job in North Carolina. And I waited for months, sitting in Tennessee, before Duke Power at the time called me and said, hey, we'd like for you to interview. Okay. So I come to North Carolina, I interviewed. I went back to Tennessee. I hadn't heard nothing for a month. Get a phone call. We want you to start working with us. Okay, cool. God said, take the job. I took the job. I didn't know anything else. I was stupid back then. Okay. I wasn't smart like I am now. I just, I don't what God told me to do one step at a time. Now I've got to see the whole picture. I've got to know it all. I need to get back to the stupidity part and just do what God's told me to do when he's telling me to do it. Just do what he's asking me to do. He went into the angel and said unto him, give me the little book. Verse 9, and he said unto me, take it and eat it up. What? The angel says, and he said unto me, take it and eat it up. It shall, be, it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And every time I read this, babe, I think of you. And your favorite verse. Do you remember your favorite verse? Can you quote your favorite verse for me? Go for it. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and honeycomb. Right. Sweeter than honey. So this little book is going to taste good in your mouth, but it's going to go in and it's going to make your belly bitter. John the Revelator went to the angel to retrieve the scroll. He was not aware of what he would be asked to do with the scroll, but he did not question. He approached the angel to retrieve the book, and he, John, was asked to eat the scroll. Mm -hmm. Jeremiah 15 and 16 says, The words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart, for I am called mm -hmm. by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. The word is sweet in the mouth, as you begin to taste it. However, as it sits in the stomach, it becomes bitter. As the word continues to change and challenge, it becomes, or it seems to become, harder for us to live the word. Mm -hmm. It can upset our plans, our desires. That's maybe the more correct way to look at it. As we first come to God, we accept everything that God tells us. Oh, we're excited. Oh, yeah, Lord, I'll do that. But as we grow in the Lord, a lot of times we go, uh-uh, no, I don't want to do that. No, you want me to do what? No, I ain't going to do that, brother. Try something else. I want you to go and talk to that individual. Oh, no, 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 no. They don't know me. I can't do that. I want you to go tell them about me. Oh, no, no, no. They're liable to get mad at me. It becomes bitter. And if we allow it, and I'm not saying that it makes us sick to our stomach, but what I'm saying is it gets harder and harder to follow God sometimes because, well, we've got our own path that we want to take. And God doesn't want us to take that path sometimes. It upsets our plans. It upsets us. Oh, my gosh, no, I've got to do this. I wonder how many preachers, teachers, and evangelists has been called to those little bitty churches that, you know, has a handful of people. But they want the mega churches. They want the big churches. So they don't go to the little churches. They go find a big church. I wonder how many of them has done that in their lifetime. Or you want me to be a missionary? I can't do that. Those people are, they don't have internet. Those people don't have electricity. I'd have to go use the bathroom in the woods. I'm no, 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 no. I'm too dignified for that. I wonder how many of them's done that before. So, you know, as, as we grow in the Lord and we say, oh Lord, here I am, I 
Send me, send me. I'll do it, I'll do it. We'll go and do it. No, I can't do that. That's just way too much. Uh-uh. No, no, no. And this is voice of experience. In a church not far from where I'm standing right now, about 30 years ago, God said, I want you to preach. And I went, uh, no, I don't think so. I certainly didn't hear that right. You want me to do what? I can't speak. I was like Moses. I can't speak. I can't talk. He said, I didn't ask you if you could talk. I didn't ask you to speak. I want you to preach. Oh, no, 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 Lord. Mm-mm, no, I, I, am a, I am a bench warmer. That's my God. That's my job. That's what I do for a living. I bench warm. I'm a good bench warmer, Lord. I'll sit here and keep this bench warm. No, no, I am not preaching. Yeah, you want God to laugh at you. Tell him what you'll do. Tell him your plans. Verse 10 says, And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. Just as the angel said it was, so sweet to the taste, it was bitter in the stomach. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Thou must prophesy again. The angel revealed to John that God was not through with him. He would go to the people and reveal the Lord to others. He was being told that he would not die in exile, but he would once again prophesy before people. What's God telling us to do? And if he's telling us to do it, it's not too hard. Now, he doesn't call the equip, but he does equip the called. He will not put us in a position where we do not, that he will leave us. We're not qualified to do any. I'm not definitely qualified to do what I'm doing tonight. But God said he just needed a vessel to fill up. Let's get into chapter 11. We might actually get chapter 11 done because it's not that many pages either. But chapter 11 is big. It's huge. It's massive. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, verse 1 says. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. A reed like a rod or a measuring stick. I used to carry the measuring stick for my dad when we was cutting firewood. That was always a fun job. Standing next to a running chainsaw. The angel tells John to measure the temple of God. But the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., about 25 to 26 years earlier from when John the Revelator is in exile by the Romans, and that was the second temple. The first temple, the temple that Jesus, or the second temple was the one Jesus was familiar with. The first temple, Solomon's temple, was destroyed about 650 years earlier. So what is this temple that John is required to measure? There will be a new temple. A third temple built prior to or at the beginning of the great tribulation. It is this temple that John is told to measure. He was told to measure the Holy of Holies in the holy place. How do we know there will be a new temple built other than John's told to measure it? There will be sacrifices made in the new temple and the Antichrist will come into the new temple and put a statue of himself in it and declare himself God. In Daniel 9 and 27, it states, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. Even until the consumption, and that determined, shall be poured upon the desolate. Daniel 12 and 11, And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand 290 days. 1,290 days is three and a half years. Second Thessalonians 2 and 4. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped? So that he as a God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. He was also told that he needed to count those who entered the temple. But in verse 2, the court which is without the temple, leave out, measure it not. For it's given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread under foot forty and two months. However, the court, the area outside the holy of holies and the holy place, the courtyard, it's not to be measured. 
And why is why doesn't the courtyard get measured? When you measure a building or a structure, often it is about possessions. You measure the structure to understand what property you own. The courtyard referred to as the courtyard of the Gentiles. It is the courtyard that the Gentiles, the non-Christians, will trot it under for 42 months or, hey, three and a half years. There is little debate as to whether this is the first half or the last half of the tribulation. Most believe it is the last half, the great tribulation. Interpretation of the scripture reveals that the Jewish nation loses ownership of the temple and Jerusalem as a whole for a brief period of time. In verse 3, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Who are the two witnesses? The scriptures do not tell us, but we can speculate. There are two throughout history that has never died. They were taken by God prior to their physical deaths. Enoch is the first one. In Genesis 5 and 24, prior to the flood, the Hebrew antediluvial period, and Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Enoch did not die. Enoch was the father of Methuselah, who lived 969 years. Who was the father of Lamech, who lived 777 years. Who was the father of Noah. And the second witness, some think, could be Elijah. 2 Kings 2 and 11. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Elijah never died. Two men that never died. So since the Bible says in Hebrews 9 and 27, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after that, or after this, the judgment. So since we are appointed to die, a lot of people will say unequivocally that the two witnesses is Enoch and Elijah, since they have not died. Now, the one that is not in question is Elijah. Most, if not all, believe he is the one witness. In Malachi 4 and 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. It's pretty clear by um, Malachi. Uh, Elijah wasn't in the picture anymore. So before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, I'm going to send you Elijah. The one that is questioned is Enoch. Or is it Moses? The miracles that the two witnesses perform is some of the same miracles that occurred in Egypt just before the Exodus. The two witnesses will prophesy for three and a half years, or 1,260 days, but we do not know who they are. The anti-Moses people will say, well, Moses died and God buried him. And scriptures point this out. However, God did raise Lazarus from the dead. He could still raise Moses from the dead. The identification of the witnesses does not matter. They witness, they prophesy, and they point out the sins and fallacies of mankind at that time. Who are the two witnesses? I have no clue. No one else does. I can tell you what Robert believes, what Robert's opinion is, but you take that and two bucks and go get you a soft drink down the store because my opinion doesn't matter. But I too believe that it is Enoch and Elijah, not Enoch and Moses. And I have a reason for that. But if you want to say it's Elijah and Moses, go for it. I don't care. I am not going to argue that point. It does not matter. Who are the two witnesses? Who cares? They're going to witness. And they're going to witness for three and a half years. And they're going to be dressed all in black and sackcloth and they're going to be walking the streets of Jerusalem and they're going to be walking the streets in, in Israel and they're going to be telling people that they're sinning and if they don't do better, they're not going to make it to heaven. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's what you're supposed to do. Maybe not wear the black sackcloth, but witness definitely. Verse 4, And these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before God 
of the earth. Zechariah 4, verses 1 through 14, and this is very long, I apologize, but it's important that we understand this. And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is waked out of his sleep and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and seven lamps thereon, seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof, and the two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other on the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring it forth upon the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of, that the Lord, excuse me, despised the day of the small things. For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord the whole earth. The two witnesses are the two anointed ones. Calling the two witnesses olive trees and candlesticks is from the Old Testament. They are anointed. They are a witness. They are going to do what God has called them to do. And if any man shall hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Just as the prophets of the Old Testament, these two will have the power to kill or allow to live. Those that defy and try to kill them, fire can be called out of heaven, just as in the days of Elijah. Anyone that attempts to destroy them will be destroyed. These have the power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of the prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all the plagues as often as they will. Elijah had the power and authority to stop the rain, and he did for, hey, three and a half years. Moses had the power to turn water to blood, to get the Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. He also released nine more plagues on Egypt. That's why they think that it's uh, Elijah and Moses, because of the, the some of the things that happens from the witness actually have taken place with Moses. Now, I say they had the power, they have the authority. It is only the power and authority that God gave them. And it is the God in them, it is not them. I don't have the power to ask the rain to stop. I can ask God to stop the rain, and he will stop the rain at times for me, but it's not me that does it, it's God. I'm just asking. I'm just the little boy that goes, excuse me, I'm getting wet. And that's actually happened a couple of times. One time when we was doing a shipment at McGuire, I asked the Lord openly, verbally, Lord, stop the rain while we're doing the shipment. And just as my hand hit the door handle, it stopped raining. The guy that was with me was a non-Christian, and he was just looking at me. I could have used him as a tent stake. He was just like, what? He said, you stopped the rain. I said, no, sir, I did not stop the rain. I just asked God to stop the rain. Well, he listened to you. He listens to all of us. He does. We just got to say the right thing. And I looked at him and I said, but I did a bad thing. He said, what did you mean? I said, I only asked him to stop the rain while I, we done the shipment. As soon as I get the signature on the paperwork, the shipment's technically over. And we've still got to walk our way back to the plant. We're going to get wet. And we did. Like two little drowned rats when we got back into the office. At my dad's funeral, it had rained and rained and rained. 
And on the way up, I looked up and I went, Lord, I'd appreciate it if you stopped the rain during the funeral. When the preacher says amen at the graveside, the funeral is technically over. It didn't start raining immediately, but before we got my dad covered with dirt, it started raining again. We got wet. We got back to the church, me and my brother and some cousins, and we were soaked. And my cousin went, looked at me and laughed and said, I really wish you'd learn how to pray, boy. God will do it for us, but it's God that's doing it, not us. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. The beast or Satan will make war against them and kill the witness. This beast that comes out of the abyss of the bottomless pit, Revelation 9 and 11. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. This beast or Satan is trying very hard to keep his power over the people, and these two witnesses was disrupting his plan. So he's going to make war. He's going to kill them. Don't get it that it's a contradiction because it says that up in verse uh, verse 5, any man that hurt them, fire proceedeth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. They will be killed in the end. It's not a contradiction. They will be killed in the end. But until Satan gets tired of them, they're going to, they're going to be prophesying. They're going to be doing God's work. Verse 8, and their dead bodies shall lie in the streets of that great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. They're going to lay in the streets of Jerusalem. It says here, spiritually Sodom and Egypt, but it, then it says that where our, our Lord was crucified. So it's Jerusalem. These two witnesses that have been killed will lie in the streets of Jerusalem, not burying the dead is the most of serious of insults. It means that the dead are worse than animals and no one cares about them. At least not enough to care to actually give them an honorable burial. The city of Jerusalem had decayed to such a sinful life that the nickname is Sodom and Egypt. And we don't have to remind you what he done to Sodom. And we shouldn't have to remind you what he did to Egypt. We know this is Jerusalem since Christ was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem on the hill of Golgotha. Verse 9, And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. They're going to walk over these dead bodies. They're going to lay in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days. All the world will see these two laying there and take no pity nor take heed of the dead. The world will not care since these two does not bother the city and the people any longer. For three and a half days, they will be in the street dead. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. The death of these two created a party worldwide. It will be a universally accepted gala event up to and including the exchanging of gifts now, there's another holiday that's universally acceptable to exchange gifts. This holiday is in celebration of a birth and not a death. This holiday, Christmas, celebrates the birth of Christ, but there's this second celebration celebrates an idolatrous lifestyle and the death of two witnesses. What God gives us for originality, Satan gives us a counterfeit. God gave us the birth of Christ and we celebrate it for Christmas. Satan kills the two witnesses and we celebrate their death. Everything that God gives us for real, Satan gives us a counterfeit. And there's going to be three and a half days of partying all over this earth. And people's going to be happy and slapping each other on the back. And I can imagine that if, if there's any work that goes on in this time period, and I think there will be, that work will stop. 
And we will be so excited. The world will be so excited that they are going to declare a three-day holiday because these two are no longer bothering us. Verse 11, And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God will enter into them. And they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. Oh, by gollies, they get up. Three and a half days, the world celebrates. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that it's three and a half days. Christ was in the tomb for three days. Don't think that's a coincidence at all. However, at the three and a half day mark, the Holy Spirit comes on the scene, enters the lifeless body of the two witnesses. Life enters back into their bodies and they stand up. The world sees this, becomes terrified. Oh, my goodness. I can imagine trying to preach a funeral where the dead just stands up or sits up and gets out of the casket. I, I, I think I'd be the first one to hit the door. I'll be honest with you. I remember hearing a story where, you know, bodies can have muscle reactions even after they pass away. And I remember hearing a story of where the deceased, a male, the husband, sat up in the casket. Now, this is, I've never seen this, and I hope I never do see this because I'll be the next one in the casket. I think I'll die of a heart attack. But the body has a muscle contraction and sits up in the casket. The wife jumps up, sees this. He, she jumps up, and she's running out of the building. And the, the entire time she's screaming, he's coming back for me. He's coming back for me. My thought is, why are you scared that he's coming back for you? What did you do? I'm sorry. I'd have to look to see what killed the old boy. Because I'd be thinking, maybe the wife had something to do with it, poisoned his chicken or something. But these three is not, these two are not having a muscle contraction. They literally stand up. And they heard a great voice from heaven standing at them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. We see this happening on TV. We see them ha this happening worldwide, maybe the Internet, maybe Twitter. I don't know, but we see this happening, and we're going, ah, bah, 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 bah. But it happens. No question about it. It will happen. As they stood up with reanimated bodies, they hear a voice calling to them from heaven and calling them to heaven. They respond to the invitation. It is unclear if the world hears the voice. But it is very clear that the two hears the voice. And they respond to the invitation and ascend into heaven in the cloud. The world is watching. And now these two have disappeared into heaven. Verse 13, in that same hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth part of the city fell. What city? Jerusalem. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand. And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to God of heaven. Well, it's about time. It, they, they needed to be hit with a wet noodle or something. I'm, I'm sorry. Some of these things that's happened, if I'm still here, and I hope I'm not, but I'm going to be giving God a lot of glory. And I'm also going to be begging, please, Lord, take me, take me, take me. A great earthquake strikes Jerusalem. A tenth of the city is destroyed, and an additional 7,000 men are killed. Remember, we're back... Four million people is all that's left on the earth because half of them's dead already. Those that survive realize the events that they have seen in the past hour is from God and they give God glory. But is it too late? The second woe is past and behold the third woe come quickly. The parentheses chapter that started the first verse of chapter 10 has ended. The continuing woes will now commence. The second woe has ended and the third is fast approaching. Remember, right before the last three trumpet sounds, five, six, and seven, the angel flies through the heavens and sends, woe, woe, woe. So we had the first woe, that was the fifth trumpet. We had the second woe, that was the sixth trumpet. Now we're about to hit the third trumpet and the third woe, or the seventh. As the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The seventh angel sounds with the seventh trumpet. 
As the trumpet sounds, the voices of heaven declare that the kingdoms of earth have now fallen to Christ. And these kingdoms will always be Jesus. His reign is forever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God. The twenty-four elders fall on their face, worship God. He has become the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Where, whether the Lord world wanted it or not, ready or not, here I come. Saying, we give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and has reigned. Their worship acknowledges that God is reigning with great power. And the nations were angry, and the wrath is come in the time of the dead that they should be judged. And that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. The nations of the earth have lost their power, but not their anger. Now the nations has to pay homage and, and tributes to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of the, his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunders and an earthquake and great hail. The temple in heaven is opened with lightning, thunder, hail, and earthquake. Well, wait a minute. He measured the temple here on the earth. The temple that's on the earth models and mirrors temple in heaven, and that's the temple that he's going to be bringing down. Chapter 11 ends with the seventh trumpet and a limited view of the events. However, in chapter 16, the events of the seventh trumpet is brought in more detail. The events of Revelation are not always chronological, and this is in one of those cases. So for the rest of the book of Revelation, pretty much, 12 through 22, 12 through 21, a lot of it is bouncing backwards and forth between the woes and the trumpets and those things. So... Now he's going to get into, he's going to dive into more detail in what was actually happening. And that confuses people. But Revelation is not meant to be chronological. He gave us the overview, and now he's going to give us, in places, a in-depth detail view. And that's where we're going next week, is we're going to start delving into some more really detailed events. And when we get to 16th chapter... We're going to be back in the seventh trumpet, and we're going to see some really, I won't say horrible things, but I'll use the word terrible, meaning mighty things. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for your many blessings upon our life, Lord, for allowing us the opportunity again to come into your house. Lord, we ask that you'll move, that you'll touch, that you'll enlighten these words to our hearts, Lord, and illuminate our paths with your words, Lord. Lord, we ask that you'll give us the understanding that we need, and Lord, that you'll give us the eyes to see, God. We ask this in Jesus' sweet and holy name we pray. Amen.